mate, Forty here. I mean, we have built such an amazing relationship, such a relationship based around trust and faith and charity and radical love and inclusion. And so what I want to do tonight is to challenge us to reinvigorate our relationship. So for some people, it will be the first time that they're taking this pledge. And then for other people, it's just renewing a, a gorgeous deeply felt relationship that's already here so please dearly beloved we are gathered here in the sight of god and in the presence of these witnesses we've got two viewers right now to join together right love and inclusion radical love and inclusion we're joining together here to create meaning and to reinforce our commitment to our shared hero system right which is commended to be honorable among all men and therefore is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, and solemnly. So it is truly a blessing from heaven for us to reinforce here and now that what we know is real and true and good and beautiful really is real, true, good, and beautiful. And it's not just some artificial construction of what is real, true, good, and beautiful, right? that we are somehow imposing upon reality just to make ourselves feel better and, and to feel like we have some you know special place in the cosmos. Because as you know, we really do have the truth, and we really know here that others live in the lie, right? They live in darkness. They are of their father, the devil, and the lust of their father they will do, right? We can't sustain our understanding of what is real, true, good, and beautiful on our own. Right? We need each other to create meaning. So everything that is precious to us dissolves without reinforcement from society. So all hierarchies, all standards of right and wrong, all values, all hero systems are socially constructed. But of course, no one can live that way. We all believe that our hero system is true and real and beautiful and good. But if you step back, yeah, it's socially constructed. Now, we don't want to return to a state of nature. That would rob us of everything sacred so verily verily i say unto you this day winter is coming we must all hang together or we shall all hang separately are you with me press one if you are with me all right let us speak frankly a different culture and our group is always a menace to us because it is a living example that life can go on heroically within a value framework totally alien to our own right these other cultures Right? These other ways of life, these other hero systems, they threaten to invade our thinking and they threaten to reveal the fictional nature of our own culture that maybe what we believe is real, true, good, and beautiful is just a social construct. So these outgroups, all right, they are undermining our hero system and thereby they are reducing us to the status of animals among animals. Are you going to put up with that? I know I'm not going to put up with that. So. When I bring you into the virtual community you're about to possess, and when I drive before you many cultures, many vlogs, many blogs, many channels, right? Channels larger and stronger than you. And when I've delivered them all over to you and you have defeated them, you must destroy them totally, right? Make no treaty with these other live streamers. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other hero systems. 
and my anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. So this is what you are to do to them. You must challenge their credibility. You must challenge their facts and logic. You must raid their live streams. You must burn down their idols. For you are a holy people. I have chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be my people, my precious, my precious. I am grooming you for great things. So vlogging, what we're doing right now, it is the promise of hope between two people who love each other sincerely, who honor each other as individuals, and who wish to unite their lives and share the future together. So in this ceremony, we dedicate ourselves to the happiness and well-being of each other in a union of mutual caring and responsibility. So will you take this live stream to be your lawfully wedded live stream in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad, till death do you part? Amen. Right? So the critics who dispute the fairness or the legitimacy of our virtual community, we will conceptually liquidate them through the countercharge that their criticisms are just sour grapes style resentment in the face of their failures to gain entry into our thing. As the philosopher Ronnie Goldman teaches us, what had been a threat to institutional legitimacy is thereby translated into an affirmation of our institutional legitimacy. Because the social meaning of their outsiders critique, their outgroup critique of us, now resides in the chip on their shoulder that highlights the desirability of the very thing that they're criticizing. So, please, join together with me, taught by our joys, by our own sorrows, even by our failures, that in vlogging and blogging, as in all of life, whosoever insists upon saving their lesser goods and their little self shall miss what is greater. But whosoever forgets themselves in devotion to this virtual live stream, to their beloved, to their precious, and in consecra consecration to our common hero system, is sure as to find a full and happy life. There are no ties on earth so sweet, none so tender as those that you're about to assume. There are no vows so solemn as those you are about to make. There is no institution of earth so sacred as that of the union that we will form. For the true home is not only the place in which we will live, but it is also the dwelling place where each lives in the heart and mind of the other. I mean, did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountains green? And was the Holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear of clouds unfold. Bring me my chariots of fire. I don't know about you, but I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. Are you with me? <laughs> well, I'm not going to let live, nine members of my, my live stream, I'm not going to allow that, that intoxication to, to blind me to, to what we're, we're building here. I'm not going to lose myself knowing that, wow, there are nine people listening right now. I mean, they, they just... They just took the pledge, all right? And this is a pledge for life. You, you can't get out of this. All right, so in reality, most of us don't really have much capacity to treat the suffering, oppression, and the legal inequality of individuals or groups who we see as obstacles to our own goals and our own visions, right? Those outgroups with whom we feel little affinity, we, 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 we don't treat them as real, all right? We don't treat their suffering as real. We don't lose sleep about their suffering. 
for us, they are just abstractions or exaggerations. They're not concrete people, right? So dominant groups don't, and we're dominant, right? This is an alpha crowd. We don't have the inclination or the ability to be fully aware of those we are dominating. Right? Dominant groups such as us, we don't consider ourselves to be oppressive. Right? We live in a, in a society where tolerance for diversity is valued. All right, so whatever we achieve, that's just natural and good and beautiful and true and justified. All right, so if if we were to examine our white privilege, all right, if if we are to absolve our dominant group of any responsibility for inequality, and therefore from bearing any of the costs of ameliorating inequality, right, the, the, there's just no motivation for us to question our privilege. So. People on the left, they hold themselves out as egalitarians who demand only universal autonomy and a more equitable distribution of resources. But every dominant class in history has sought to legitimate itself through some idealistic framework or another. The, the feudal lord maintained his dominion for the betterment of the serfs. The priest exercised his own special privileges for the betterment of the sinners. Lords and priests didn't view themselves as the dominant class, as having privilege. They were no less than the peasant they're just simply subordinated to the divine order in which everyone was only playing their own small role. So let's talk about the harm principle. That's the libertarian position, and it's also held by much of the left, that the state may only regulate harmful as opposed to merely immoral conduct. Right? This is a trusty weapon in the arsenal of liberalism. So let's say the nice bloke next door is regularly having sexual intercourse with his mother. Now, that's not harming you, yet I suspect you would find that upsetting and disturbing. You would feel that it's doing harm to you, but it'd be hard to articulate. If the brother and sister down the street are having regular sexual intercourse, how is that harming you? But you experience it as a harm. So conservative defenders say of marriage as being just between a man and a woman, they have a hard time articulating how same-sex marriage is harming them, right? So it's hard to articulate, for example, how pornography contributes to the degradation of our society. So our traditional arguments are generally dismissed by those on the left as rationalizations for moralistic motivations. So the harm principle almost always yields to liberal prescriptions. Now, here is the counter argument from the traditional side. People get their satisfaction and their happiness from living in a particular kind of community. This is a particular kind of community. We come here to reinforce for each other what we understand to be true, good, beautiful, what's right and, and what's wrong. Right? We're, we're dissidents in the larger community. We, we feel the heel of the liberal left jackboot on our necks. And so we gather together here to give each other strengths. So... Like everyone, we get our satisfaction and our happiness from living in a particular kind of community, even when that community is virtual. Right? So any conduct that subverts our community, our thing, our group, reduces our happiness, and thereby it inflicts harm upon us. And so knowing the guy next door is regularly buggering his mother, right, that reduces my happiness. I feel harmed by that. That's like an aggressive mood, even if I never see it or hear from it, and I can't point concretely to a direct harm. It's just incredibly icky. It, it disturbs me.
Yeah, I don't want to slide down the slippery slope of uh, degeneracy, right? And if if a, you know, a, a brother down the block is regularly having sex with his sister, that harms me. It's an aggressive sort of harm, even if I never see it. Just knowing that that's happening on my boss, that that icky incest is going on on my block, it harms me because I get my joy and my satisfaction, my happiness and my meaning in life from living in a particular kind of community where that is forbidden. So liberals and people on the left think they're so rational, right? They, they are not moved, they're not impressed by our traditional premonitions about the erosion or unraveling of the social order, which things like uh, same-sex marriage and transsexual rights bring about. Right? So people on the left dismiss our moral urges as an inadequate basis for resisting changes that satisfy immediate needs and urgent de desires. This is Amy Wax. So our vague premonitions of the erosion or unraveling of standards and of society they're supposed to be just symptoms of a lingering pre-modern sensibility, right? And we simply haven't grown up, right? And we cannot be permitted to interfere with liberals' more tangible concerns with assisting modern fulfillment. So Justice Blackman's dissent in Bowers versus Hardwick argued that homosexuality in and of itself involves no real interference with the rights of others. The, the mere knowledge that other individuals do not adhere to our value system cannot be a legally cognizable interest, but we feel it, right? We feel it in our guts, even if it's hard to articulate, right? If incest is going on, even though it's all consensual and it's among adults and ostensibly no one's being harmed, we feel harmed. So how do we frame our opposition, for example, to same-sex marriage, right? So is it just some kind of Hobbesian annoyance or is it a an important disequilibrium in the order of things? So the left-wing philosopher Martha Nussbaum at the University of Chicago claims, what inspires disgust is typically the male thought of the male homosexual imagined as anally penetrable. So is this the, the basis of your homophobia that you've got, you know, feelings of disgust, the idea of some of the men getting anally penetrated? Are you bothered by the idea of semen and feces mixing together inside the body of a male? Is this one of the most disgusting ideas imaginable? All right. It, do you have the idea that the non-penetrability of your anus is some kind of sacred boundary against stickiness, ooze, and death? And so the presence of one homosexual male in your neighborhood, does that inspire the thought that you might lose your own clean safeness, that you might unwittingly become the receptacle of these animal products? So is your disgust ultimately disgust at one's own imagined anal penetrability and ooziness? And is this why the male homosexual is regarded with disgust and viewed with fear as a predator who might make everyone else disgusting? Right? So have you simply not grown up and not come to accept the harm principle? Right? There's a male homosexual on your block. You know, why do you care if he's getting anally penetrated? Yeah, why are you so grossed out at the idea of semen and feces mixing together in his anus? So Martha Nussbaum wants to expel the language of shame and disgust from the public sphere. She wants us to graduate to a certain level of human recognition, right? She wants us to move into the psychological foundations of liberalism, right? And they will be fully realized in a society that acknowledges its own humanity. You simply, is your homophobia springing from an inability to acknowledge your own humanity, right? 
Are you trying to hide from your humanity, right? Maybe in a fully realized liberal society, we'll have a group of citizens who will willing to admit that they are needy and vulnerable and might get anally penetrated every now and again, right? Like people who are straight, they just they just have anal sex with guys every so often and come down with monkeypox because straight people can get monkeypox too. Like straight people who, you know, who are men who sometimes have anal sex with other men. I mean, largely straight, almost always straight, except for when they're getting buggered, right? So do we need to develop a society of citizens who are willing to admit that they are needy and vulnerable? And are they willing to just simply discard the grandiose demands for omnipotence and completeness that have been at the heart of so much human misery, both public and private? So the psychological foundations of liberalism, and this is from Ronnie Goldman's terrific book on conservophobia, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, The Nature and Origins of Conservophobia. So what are the psychological foundations of liberalism? It's a discipline that we impose on our emotional lives. It subdues the symbolic elements that do not reliably track the kind of harms that are cognized from a non-anthropocentric standpoint, right? So the psychological foundations from the liberal perspective involve the self-discipline to transcend your maleness, your anthropocentricity, to transcend the or to human need to embed oneself within an order that would lift one above the mere animal and infuse one with a greater fullness of being. So people have traditionally achieved this transcendence through religion and adherence to traditional hero systems. But are you willing to expose yourself psychologically to the reality of your animal vulnerability? Are you willing to disavow the culturally sustained hierarchies of the pure and the impure, the normal and the abnormal? Right? That's what the denial of vulnerability depends upon. Now, if you eschew these hierarchies, you prepare to see the world naturally as simply an agglomeration of vulnerable organisms just making their way in the world. And some people need to go to a bathhouse and hook up with a bunch of randos and come down with monkeypox and other people get married and stay faithful to their spouses and raise kids. So are you ready for this kind of natural disengagement? It allows you to understand disgust non-anthropocentrically, right? Just as an evolved mechanism that might have once served as a reliable indicator of bacteria or a reliable indicator of fear of monkeypox. But we know that once you get PrEP and the vaccine for monkeypox, this sense of disgust, it now functions as a highly unreliable indicator of genuine threats to our welfare. So we get our meaning and purpose in life from a hero system where this kind of behavior is heroic and this kind of behavior is disgusting and this is right and this is wrong and we all play a special role in the cosmos so we depend upon a society regulating social meaning in accordance with these traditional strictures so the traditionalists resist the open inclusion of gays in the military because this inclusion you know threatens our whole sense of meaning it threatens what we have always understood what it means to be a military man, right? So a military man in history was, you know, unambiguously male, strong, disciplined, emotionless, and heterosexual. So the inclusion of gays who get stereotyped as effeminate, weak, and irresolute, that alters the whole social meaning of membership in the military. It completely deprives it of traditional connotations. So even if one, no one was compelled to affirm that gays have a rightful place in the military 
or is kept from opining to the contrary, the open inclusion of gays establishes a new social meaning. It establishes a new orthodoxy. It alters the background of social meanings in the context of which opinions are shaped and social meanings that we as individuals cannot help but encounter and which we must essentially submit to. Now, the individual might continue to posit the military enterprise is essentially heterosexual, but this judgment is no longer built into the intrinsic meaning of our society, the way that ideals of discipline and obedience used to be. So what is a hero system? Right. A, a society is a symbolic action system, says Ernest Becker. It is a structure of statuses and roles, customs and rules of behavior designed to serve as a vehicle for earthly heroism. All right, We all want to be the heroes in our own story. Each script is unique. Each culture has a different hero system. And the presence of so many different hero systems in our midst threatens to reduce our allegiance to the hero system that we believe in. So... Anthropologists call this cultural relativity, right? It's the reality that there are hero systems, different hero systems the world over. And each culture cuts out roles for earthly heroics. So each society cuts out roles for performances of varying degrees of heroism, from the high heroism of a Winston Churchill, a Mao, or a Buddha, to the low heroism of the coal miner, the peasant, the simple priest, the plain, everyday, earthy heroism wrought by gnarled working hands guiding a family through hunger and disease. Now, it doesn't matter if our cultural hero system is magical, religious, primitive, secular, scientific, and civilized, right? We cannot live without a mythical hero system in which we serve this hero system to earn a feeling of value, of being special, of, of having a special role in the universe, right? That we are ultimately useful to creation. And this is what gives us unshakable meaning. Without a society giving us a hero system, we don't have meaning, purpose, and happiness, right? So we get to earn this feeling of cosmic specialness by carving out our own place in nature, by building edifices that reflect our values, a temple, a cathedral, a synagogue, a totem pole, skyscraper, a family that lasts many generations. So we create things that we hope will last for a long time and that they will have meaning and they will outlive and outshine death and decay. They will outlive and outshine us. So no matter how scientific or secular our society claims to be, we cannot live without a hero system. We cannot live without hopeful belief that uh, the things that we do count for more than what other people do. So everything we do in this sense is religious and heroic Yet, it is constantly in danger of being understood as fictitious and fallible. And we don't want that. So that's why we join together to keep it real. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. And if you're Joe Biden, if you think about it, it takes a lot of brass to brag about Afghanistan or even mention the word. You know, as Bill Clinton doesn't casually drop the term Monica Lewinsky in conversation, he tries to forget it ever happened. And you think Biden would feel the same way about Afghanistan. His withdrawal from that country almost a year ago was the single most humiliating moment in American foreign policy since the fall of Saigon in April of 1975. There are a lot of ways to pull out of Afghanistan. Biden chose a path that seemed designed to inflict maximum damage to the interests of the United States. He did that. Kind of no debating it. But Biden is not ashamed of it. He wasn't ashamed of it then. He's not ashamed of it now. 
Tonight, Biden gave a speech boasting that he's killed an al-Qaeda figure in Afghanistan. Great. Feel safer? Of course you don't. Nobody does. And the reason nobody feels safer is Biden's response to the disaster in Afghanistan. Rather than pause and learn from it, maybe fire the people responsible for it, not simply the self-destructive withdrawal from Afghanistan, but also the pointless 20-year war there, rather than do any of that like a normal person would do, Biden immediately set off in another direction, provoking yet another conflict, this one in Eastern Europe. And he provoked it. They lie about it, but it's true. The facts are out there, and it's very obvious. So just days after the Russian government announced yet again that if Ukraine joined NATO, NATO didn't even want Ukraine to join, but if Ukraine were to join NATO, then the Russian army would invade Ukraine. So days after they said this for like the 50th time in a row, Kamala Harris arrived at the Munich Security Conference and publicly, reading from a script, called for Ukraine to join NATO. She read the words. They were written by someone at the State Department, so they knew exactly what they were doing when they did it. They wanted a war with Russia, and now we have one. We're not winning that war, by the way. The main American casualty so far has been our economy, which is dying. So what was the point of this exercise? Maybe someday they will tell us. But we don't have time to think about it because now we have yet another potential war to contend with. And it comes in Asia. Just what we need. This week, with the blessing of the Biden administration, Nancy Pelosi decided to head to Taiwan. That's all but confirmed at this point. Government officials in Taipei have just been notified that Pelosi's arrival is imminent. She may be in the air right now. She's definitely coming, one source told the Wall Street Journal. The only variable is whether she spends the night. So Nancy Pelosi goes to Taipei. What's the effect of that? Well, we don't need to guess. The Chinese government has said repeatedly and clearly that if Nancy Pelosi lands in Taiwan, it could trigger a global war. Watch. A Chinese spokesperson said there would be serious consequences for the visit over the weekend conducting military drills at sea. If House Speaker Pelosi insists on visiting Taiwan, China will take resolute and strong measures to defend its sovereignty and territorial integrity. Are they bluffing? It doesn't sound like it, actually. A representative of Chinese state media said this, quote, if U.S. fighter jets escort Pelosi's plane into Taiwan, it is an invasion. The Chinese army has the right to forcibly dispel Pelosi's plane and the U.S. fighter jets, including firing warning shots and making tactical movement of obstruction. If ineffective, then shoot them down. Oh, shoot them down. Okay. So the White House naturally was asked about this. We're suddenly on the brink of yet another global war, potentially a nuclear war, because Nancy Pelosi has been given the green light by the White House to fly to Taiwan. So what's the White House view of this? Listen. Uh, an official who is associated with Chinese state media is suggesting that if Speaker Pelosi tries to go to Taiwan, her plane could be shot down. Does the president have a response to that? You know, I've been asked about, I know you're asking specifically about uh, uh, the rhetoric that we're hearing from China, but as it relates to uh, the speaker's uh, the speaker's uh, travels, uh, it's something that we're just not going to speak to right now. That's a hypothetical. It doesn't seem like a big deal to put dumb people in positions of authority. Oh, we're helping them out. She's breaking ceilings. Okay, got it. Until something terrible goes wrong, which inevitably happens when you're running the biggest country in the world. That's a hypothetical, says Corrine Jean-Pierre, 
even though, of course, it's the opposite of a hypothetical. There's nothing hypothetical about it. China has repeatedly threatened to shoot down the plane carrying America's Speaker of the House, third in line for the presidency. And yet no one seems to think this is a big deal. This is one of the weirdest moments in the weirdest presidency in American history. The Biden administration is provoking a hot war with China, which by itself would seem to be headline news. But why? It might make a kind of sense if Biden had been a China hawk over the course of his career, if he wasn't taking money from the Chinese government, which he has. But of course, he's the opposite of a China hawk. He is a toady to China. Since the day Biden was elected, he has helped the Chinese government in ways that no American president has ever even contemplated. A partial list. The administration helped cover up the origins of COVID, even after it became very clear that this global pandemic, which wrecked the American economy, was created by the Chinese military. But we can't mention that because it's racist. Then the White House shut down a counter-espionage program designed to stop Chinese spying, which is endemic in the United States. Then Biden dropped tariffs against Chinese goods. Then he refused to do anything to move critical manufacturing back to the United States. And at the same time, he's literally selling our strategic oil reserves to China in the middle of a domestic energy crisis. And by the way, handing our entire energy grid over to the government of China. And then to top it off today, the Pentagon spokesman, John Kirby, who acts as the White House spokesman, all of a sudden, for some reason, said this, quote, we do not support Taiwan independence. When was the last time a White House said that? No, they don't say that. Now they are saying it. We don't think Taiwan's its own country. Okay. So on every level, meaningfully on the policy levels that matter, Biden has been more pro-China than any president, and yet he seems to want a war with China now. This does not make any sense at all. In fact, it only makes sense if the Biden White House is intentionally trying to weaken and destroy the United States. There's no other logical explanation for what we're seeing now. And in fact, the template is very familiar. What's happening in China looks very much like what happened in Ukraine earlier this year. The administration sends the least capable possible emissary to a flashpoint in a faraway part of the world in order to provoke a violent response. Then it was Kamala Harris, who was an international joke, the last person you would send to negotiate any kind of peaceful settlement to the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. But they sent her anyway. She exacerbated it, and they got what they wanted, which was an invasion of Ukraine and a war with Russia, which is what they wanted. Now they're sending Nancy Pelosi. And not to be mean, but like Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi is senile. Don't believe it? You probably don't see her speak very often. We're going to treat you. Here's Nancy Pelosi's explanation for why she is going to Taiwan. The um, president earlier, well, earlier in his term, talked about a strong emphasis on the Asian Pacific. Uh, he, he has visited there, the vice president's visit there, the secretary of commerce and others. And uh, we want the Congress of the United States to be part of that initiative. Of course, as a West Coast person, we see the Pacific as, there are, you know, that's our, their home. We're part of that as well. That is not to diminish the importance of our uh, transatlantic relationships as well. But uh, it's, it's, we're, I'm very excited, if, should we go uh, to the countries that we're, we, you'll be hearing about along the way. She's excited. She's going to assemble a slideshow. We're going to meet in the gym later and see the picture she's taking. Because it turns out as a West Coast person, and it's supposed to be very much that, 
Taiwan has always been on her bucket list. So many nights she stared across San Francisco Bay and wondered what it's like over there in Taipei. So for Nancy Pelosi, as she just told you, this is a dream come true. Next year, she's going to Disney World. This year, Taipei. This is lunacy. Nancy Pelosi clearly, you just saw the tape, has no understanding of what she is doing or what might happen if she does it. No one wants to say it out loud, but the truth is she can't know. Because like Kamala Harris, she has never even been in a bar fight. She has no understanding of violence or its consequences. And there are consequences, including the potential deaths of millions of people. This is exactly the wrong time, the craziest possible time, to send an 82-year-old narcissist to Taiwan. The U.S. has never been less ready for war, particularly for war with China. And the Biden administration has done everything it can to make certain that we are not ready for a war with China, or even with the Taliban. Biden has, since the day he took office, politicized and weakened the United States military systematically to the point we are not going to win a war against China. Sorry, that's true. General Mark Milley out there telling Congress that soldiers need to learn about white rage because otherwise they'll be unprepared for combat. Attacking people on the basis of their skin color? Right. Firing Navy SEALs because they won't get the vaccine? The healthiest people in the world? And they're fired? because they won't get the vaccine. And then just to make totally clear what the point is, and the point of course is humiliation and degradation, the destruction of centuries old military traditions, let's have drag shows on military bases. So no one, which they are now doing, no one should be surprised that people don't really wanna join a military like that. A woke military, it's a joke. And the recruitment numbers show it. This is a crisis. The U.S. military is now signing up, no exaggeration, mentally deficient troops. That's not hyperbole. The Army used to ban recruits with a history of mental health problems, including self-mutilation, because of course you would. You're not going to hand people guns if they have a history of mental instability. But now DOD is issuing waivers for those recruits because they need them, as well as for recruits with aptitude issues. In other words, with an IQ so low, it would be very difficult to navigate modern war, as well as records of drug use. But all of this, lowering the standards to these points, are still not enough to make recruitment goals. The Army just told Congress it has to reduce its total force strength by 10,000 next year. By 2023, we'll be 21,000 troops short. The Army has just met half of its recruiting goals so far this fiscal year with only two months left. Why? Two months left. They're halfway there. Well, again, Because the military under Joe Biden, and no one wants to say this because it's so depressing, the last great meritocracy in the West is no longer a meritocracy. It's totally politicized. Firing soldiers who didn't take the shot. More than 60,000 National Guard and Reserve soldiers just lost pay and benefits because they wouldn't take the shot in the face of a mountain of evidence that the shot actually doesn't work and can hurt you, particularly if you're a young man who comprised the overwhelming majority of our troops. Then the military, once again, telling white men that they're privileged and inherently evil. Major General Ed Thomas, the Air Force recruitment director, published an op-ed called, and we're not making this up, 86% of Air Force pilots are white men. Here's why this needs to change. Really? The thousands of Air Force pilots who died in the service of their country happen to be white men. Their families are now being informed, actually, they shouldn't have been flying anyway because of the race. 
So what does the Air Force want to become? Well, at the end of July, the Air Force hosts a diversity festival at Langley with a drag show featuring a performer called Harpy Daniels. Of course, kids are welcome. The Air Force is also paying for a bouncy house and face painting for the children to keep them occupied between all the drag shows. Meanwhile, in China, here's a video the PLA just put out this week, which shows a different kind of orientation. Watch this. Did you notice the difference? There were no trans admirals in that video. By the way, all of this is publicly available. So the next time you hear members of Congress, particularly Republican members of Congress, and we can think of quite a few of them, starting with Liz Cheney, lecturing you about our military. We support our military. and We're signing off on a brand new military budget. They've done nothing about this. The degradation of the U.S. military, politicized, woke, weak, that's happened with no oversight from the Congress. They just keep funding this stuff. They're implicated in this. There are also some pictures of China's Navy in the video you just saw. It turns out China's Navy is now larger than ours. That's a problem because once China controls the shipping lanes, China controls the economy of the world. According to the Spectator of London, this is worth thinking about, quote, if a naval blockade gave Beijing control of the export of Taiwan's semiconductor industry, which is huge, then Western leaders would find themselves beholden to China to keep their economies going. Russia's use of gas to dampen Western opposition to its actions in Ukraine would be dwarfed by China's ability to hold the world ransom through control of Taiwan's chips. In other words, if we went to war with China and we're moving in that direction, the Chinese could simply turn off our economy because our people in charge of our country have made no preparations for this. The Chinese government could prevent us from having, I don't know, cars that run, refrigerators, cell phones, computers. They would also be able to stop exports of antibiotics. According to the Council on Foreign Relations, Chinese pharmaceutical companies supply more than 90% of American antibiotics, as well as ibuprofen, take Advil, vitamin C, hydrocortisone, which treats asthma and arthritis. China supplies more than 70% of acetaminophen, often called Tylenol. What else does China make? Well, China makes everything, for example, that you need to transport goods across the country. China produces 96% of the world's shipping containers. They make 80% of the cranes that carry cargo from the ship to the dock. So because this has been coming at us in slow motion for a decade and a half and no one's done anything about it, we find ourselves right now, August 1st, 2022, incapable of winning a war against China. If this goes forward, we will lose. And yet for some reason, the Biden administration has allowed Nancy Pelosi to go over there to provoke a military confrontation with China. Is there any other explanation other than they are rooting for the destruction of the United States? If there is one, text us. Some Republicans, by the way, are for this. They're for all war. Mike Gallagher, who represents Wisconsin, just said, quote, I think it would be in keeping with that track record and very useful for American diplomacy and foreign policy for the Speaker of the House to go to Taiwan. Yeah, whatever. Steve Shabbat, a Republican representing Ohio, agrees with that. Quote, I think it's important that we show solidarity with our ally Taiwan, he said. Oh, okay. Are we in a position to show solidarity with our ally, Taiwan? And how far are we willing to take this? 
China has a lot of nuclear weapons. How does that factor into the equation? They're threatening it, so you think our leaders would have a response. Kareem Jean-Pierre has no idea what's going on, which is why today the White House put the Pentagon spokesman, John Kirby, at the podium. And here's what John Kirby said. I guess I'm, I'm wondering, why did the president bother with this drama from the beginning? I mean, why not, rather than saying the military doesn't think it's a good idea to go, why not call the Chinese bluff or, or tell them to pound sand when they started bellyaching about the possibility of this trip? Given, as you pointed out, there's no change in policy and there's precedent for Pelosi to visit Taiwan. So what's the drama? What, what, Have what, you watched the Braves the last couple of weeks? I mean, there's been this question of... Yeah, I've been here the last couple of weeks. I haven't seen any drama. I think... I think you're manufacturing it with your question. So oily. I think you're manufacturing drama with your question, says the Pentagon press secretary. After China has threatened to shoot down the Speaker of the House, to kill the Speaker of the House. I think you're manufacturing drama. No, the drama's inherent. So again, what the hell is going on? This seems like a systematic attempt to end the United States. How does the U.S. conceivably benefit from a war over Taiwan right now? There are probably pretty good reasons to prepare for war with China, which may be inevitable, but that's not one of them. Colonel Doug McGregor joins us. Doug, thanks so much for coming on. I, you know, I, I can't do anything but speculate as to motive here. This is the cra- one of the craziest things I think I've ever seen in my life. But is the United States military in a position now to stage a, a war with China? Well, of course not. You're 100% right on that topic. I think we have to admit that this is probably the most reckless and irresponsible administration in living memory. Uh, We don't have anyone that qualifies as a statesman. Statesmanship involves advancing American interests at the least cost to the American people. None of that is in play here. We're dealing with a group of posers, people who are posturing, Posturing is not statesmanship. And the American people need to understand something that no one has bothered to tell them. That during World War II, Taiwan was the unsinkable aircraft carrier of the Imperial Japanese Armed Forces. All the major invasions of China were launched from Taiwan. Beijing will not allow Taiwan to become a garrison state for American armed forces or Japanese armed forces or any foreign power. And if they think that we are going to ally ourselves with Taiwan, if they think we are going to intervene to defend that island in the event of a dispute, then we will be at war with China for the reasons that I just outlined. And we are not prepared for that. We are grossly overstretched. We don't have the logistical infrastructure. And frankly, there's an old adage that everyone should remember. A ship's a fool to fight a fort. You have to fight China from the sea. We can't win that. China can absorb everything we throw at it. And the Chinese are happy to sit there, let us travel thousands of miles to reach them, and then sink us. This, I I, I don't know why every show on TV is not covering this right now. This seems like one of the craziest things that's happened in my lifetime. Do you have any speculation and guess as to why the Biden administration would want this? Well, the Biden administration and its predecessors, frankly, treated everything that the Russian government said for the last 15 years about Ukraine with complete contempt. They're repeating that process. We see how well that's worked out in Ukraine. The Russians were always serious. 
Hundreds of thousands of lives have been lost in this war in Ukraine that we should have acted quickly to stop. Now we're provoking the Chinese over an, over an issue that is at least as strategically important to them. That's uh, beyond belief. Colonel Doug McGregor, I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Sure. So we don't do a lot of golf topics on this show. In fact, we try not to ever weigh in on topics we don't know a lot about. We know a lot of you at home are golfers. You probably know the name Greg Norman. He's at the center of the biggest controversy in sports right now, a new golf league called Live, taking a lot of the players from the PGA Tour. Now, again, not taking sides in this, but we thought it was interesting enough that we wanted to go see it. So we went to Trump National Golf Club in New Jersey this weekend. We asked. Okay, so let me know if uh, Nancy Pelosi lands in Taiwan. So when is she supposed to arrive? Seems like a fairly important story that we should keep our eyes on. Okay, so if you want to be trad, if you want to be right-wing, if you want to be conservative in contemporary America, you have to commit yourself with an emotional intensity that was just completely unnecessary, say, prior to the 1950s, right? It's like a musician in the making contemporary America must commit himself to music with an emotional intensity that was completely unnecessary in 19th century Vienna. Precisely because in the American situation right now, there is a powerful competition from what will subjectively appear as the materialistic and mass culture of the rat race. So religious training in a pluralistic situation demands a, a reality accentuation and an intensity that are unnecessary in a situation dominated by a religious monopoly. So if you want a coherent, cohesive society, you'd think it would be easier just to have one dominant religion, all right? Because as soon as you have multiple religions, it casts into doubt the truth of your own religion, right? It's natural to become a Catholic priest in Rome that is not natural in America. So American theological seminaries and Orthodox Jewish institutions have to constantly cope with the problem of reality slippage, and they have to constantly devise techniques for making stick the traditional reality, right? They have to accentuate reality, right? You need techniques of reality accentuation to keep going in directions that are not blessed by the society around you. So people who are not left liberal secular, they need to operate with reality accentuation. And that's what this show is all about. We're here about accentuating the reality, of what is true, good, and beautiful, All right? The meanings that sustain us, that sustain our whole understanding of ourselves, of the world, of the cosmos, of what is true, good, and beautiful, these meanings won't work if they're recognized as simply things that we have made up, if they're just fictions of our mind, if they're just socially constructed, all right, then they lose all their power, right? What we believe in must be upheld as transcendent, as, you know, cosmic divine truth, right? If our life is based upon the, the vagaries of human predilection and, and human construction, then it's not going to hold any power over us, right? We need our meaning ultimately to spring from, spring from the transcendent and from God. So we depend upon others to uphold an order of things, a meaning system, a, a hero system upon which we all depend, right? We don't merely entertain an understanding of 
what is right and wrong and true and good and beautiful. We depend upon each other in society to construct that and to share that. So our relations depend upon sharing a, a similar hero system, to share a sense of what's significant and what needs to be sustained. Now, deviant voices don't necessarily upset the order of things, but they they have the potential to upset us. They They eat away at our conviction that what we believe to be true, good, and beautiful is the way it really is, right? It's the way we've always taken it to be. And that therefore, we are who we believe ourselves to be. Our self-identity, our meaning in life, our purpose, our happiness depends upon believing a particular story. And the multiplication of stories and hero systems out there will eat away at our belief in the truth and goodness and divinity of the story that we live our life by. And so all these other systems on those other live streams, guys, those other live streams, they're eating away at your sense of reality, right? They, they, if you have an unguarded moment on some other live stream, it could call you to reality slip, man. You will slip away from what you understand to be true, good, and beautiful, right? Because these other live streams, they might go off script, then you might go off script, and they might upset the plausibility of the narrative against which you live your life. And which gives you an identity. And so with all the hero systems out there, all the stories out there, all right, the greater the chances that you'll go nuts, right? So just like in a movie, our identities engross us only to the degree that they fit with a particular story, right? We need narrative coherence. We need a story that works for us and not just works for us, that we believe to be true. And we need a story that is established and preserved. And we need to fight off stories that undercut what we believe to be true, good, and beautiful, right? We need story. We need narrative coherence. And these things provide us with moral order. And without moral order, then we have no nothing governing our lives and telling us who we are. So just as Blackman says, oh, the mere knowledge that other individuals don't adhere to one's value system, you know, going out there committing sodomy, that presents a very real threat. It's not just an isolated piece of information. It's a data point that resists our story, our narrative that sustains our life. So all this deviant behavior out there, right? All those icky other live streamers, they're contaminating our story, our data set, our vital bodily fluids. They are eating away at the foundation of our life. Right? One culture, Ernest Becker says this, one culture is always a potential menace to another culture because a different hero system, a different culture, a different story is a living, breathing example that life can go on heroically within a value framework totally alien to our own value framework. And so all these other stories and live streamers out there and communities, right? they are revealing the fictional nature of our own story. Right? They are undermining the necessary preconditions of our hero system. And they are, therefore, they are reducing us to the status of animals among animals. And do you really want to be just an animal among animals? So the whole point of culture is to give us identity and purpose and a hero system. Right? We only become acutely aware of this in response to whatever threatens it, such as the traditionalists, it's same-sex marriage, the, the trans movement, 
and other forms of, of deviancy from traditional morality. So we can try to neutralize these threats, right, through conceptual liquidation. We, we can say that these threats are an inferior status. They are not to be taken seriously. And so we can translate threats to our story by, by using concepts from our symbolic universe, right? So their attempts to negate our story will just subtly change that into an affirmation of our story. So those who dispute the fairness or legitimacy of our story, we can conceptually liquidate them. Don't harm them. Don't, don't lay a finger on their shoulder, right? But we're just going to charge that their criticisms are just sour grape style resentment in the face of their failure to gain entry into our thing. So liberals have this self-image that they're just strategic agents, that they have cast off the confining, you know, ultimate teleological distortions of the past. But this is a distortion of what human beings are like, right? We all depend upon a hero system, right? We've all been cemented and harnessed to a particular way of life and to a particular story and a particular hero system, right? So we get a good feeling for what is good and who we are, right? So imagine that we are contained in, in a, the cylinder of our body, like an amoeba, and we're constantly pushing outside of our body the, the pseudopods from an amoeba to a spouse, to a car, a flag, a crushed flower, and a secret book, right? I remember there was this woman that I loved when I went back to Gladstone, Australia, when I was 18, and there was one night I was walking down Gundoon Street in Gladstone, Friday night, and I saw this woman that I was crazy about, and uh, she called out to me from the other side of the street, and uh, I met up with her, and we started walking, we walked down to the harbor, and I got her to write down her phone number on a chewing gum wrapper, and I kept that chewing gum wrapper for years, right? It had so much meaning for me. Now, I think she later died in a drunk driving accident. But just imagine yourself as an amoeba, and everything that's true, good, and important to you is spreading out over the landscape. Right? Its boundaries keep extending far from our own center. Now, if you destroy that gum wrapper where I have Rachel's phone number on it, right, you are doing tremendous harm to me. Right? If you tear and burn down the American flag, you... You're killing me, right? I'll scream out with soul-searing pain, right? So we extend ourselves to all sorts of things we hold dear and also all sorts of silly things, things that we supposedly don't need, just artificial things like our car. I remember how much I loved my first car. It was a 1968 Volkswagen Bug. And I cleaned that and I polished that and I vacuumed that. I took such good care of it. And then looking down while changing the station on my radio, I ran smack into a parked school bus one morning and just did tremendous damage to my Volkswagen. And it was just so upsetting. I had invested so much. I loved so much my first car and then I wrecked it. And it was like part of me had been destroyed. Right? And that's normal, right? We, we tend to get attached to our cars and not just transportation mechanisms, right? We tend to get attached to our interior decorating, right? If you came and you ripped down my posters, my soul would scream out, right? We, we get vitally upset by a piece of wallpaper that bulges, a shelf that does not join, a, a light fixture that isn't right, a, a sound system that, that, you know, has distortions in it, right? So 
you'll see someone who you think is high functioning and they'll break into violent arguments or even start crying over a panel that doesn't match over wallpaper that has a bulge. And so interior decorators can find that many people have dramatic symptoms and nervous breakdowns during redecorating because it's an extension of us. I've seen a grown, a silver-templed Italian, says Ernest Becker here, crying in the street in his mother's arms over a small dent in the bumper of his Ferrari. That's how we roll. Now, we call certain people strong if they can you know, withdraw their pseudopod at will from trifling parts of their identity. Right, people who can say, "Oh, it's only a scratch on a Ferrari," or that uneven wall—that's not me. The wood crack is not me. Right, people who can disentangle themselves easily and flexibly from the little damages and ravages to their self-extension. But there is this huge discrepancy between our actual lived experience and our cultural self-understanding. Right, the liberal view is that we're just disengaged strategic agents maneuvering within a neutral environment, denuded of cosmic and super-individual significance. And all these preoccupations with bulging wallpaper and disjointed shelves, they're just quintessentially modern. They're just white people problems, right? But we can't escape that, right? You can, you know, strategically pursue modern fulfillment in another man's asshole, right? But we all have a sensed order of things. We all believe in a hero system. We all believe in a story, And when people damage our story or defecate on our story, that rips us up inside, right? That's depriving us of the conditions under which we know who we are and under which we can thrive and live and love and, and have our being, right? So it's really hard to withdraw our pseudopods from what seem like just mere trifles on the outside. So in real life, We are not disengaged strategic agents, right? All our calculations and all our planning depends upon our hero system and our story, right? We're not looking upon an external world through through the windows of ourselves from the isolation of our own ego. We're already outside of ourselves. We know ourselves by our perceptions of what's outside of ourselves, right? We're not just in the world. We are involved in it, right? Existence is to stand outside of oneself, to be beyond oneself. This is Martin Heidegger. My being is not something that just takes place inside my skin. My being is spread over this entire virtual community, over fields, over hills, over dales. My meaning will never fail, right? Our being consists of the entire world that we care ourselves about. This is Martin Heidegger's theory of man and of being. You could call it the field theory of man. We live by our understanding of the world out there and our participation in it. So we don't encounter the world as a disengaged strategic agent, right? Without a place in the larger order, without a hero system, without a story, We are unintelligible to ourselves. We don't understand who we are. We cannot just readily alter social meanings at will. When social meanings get altered, this is incredibly upsetting. Our understanding of ourself originates in social meaning. So a meaning is first encountered out there in the world, not just in some kind of disembodied, you know, interior sensation. So 
this liberal ethos of disengaged self-control and self-reflexivity is a form of engagement, right? Its contours are structured by what's going on in how we experience reality in our story. And, and reality will either slip or be accentuated on the basis of change in social conditions and chance. So the liberal idea of kind of disengaged reflexivity of the strategic agent, it produces a sensation that the self resides somewhere inside of one's skin. But it doesn't. It exists outside of us and inside of us. Right? Social meanings constrain us because they give us our story. They give us our identity. To preserve our identity is to contain our freedom, to limit the range of life possibilities that one can seriously contemplate. You may think that you just can't contemplate going to a gay bathhouse and having sex with 20 random dudes, right? To even consider that possibility would destroy your sense of self, right? This narrow story is the sine qua non of taking yourself seriously. And that's what social meaning allows us to maintain. If we had social meaning and all these hero systems that we could just choose, you know, one, one day and another another day, Right, that destroys us. We're no longer a force to be reckoned with. Like, so hero systems are not idle symbolic luxuries. They're not just intangible cultural concerns. They are a biological necessity. We can't live without a hero system. Now, conservatives are emphatic in their warnings about same-sex marriage and how it threatens the basic institution of marriage, but they've always had a hard time explaining how this should be. How does the presence of the same-sex couple next door possibly impinge on the stability of one's own marriage? So the liberal reflex has always been to dismiss the conservative point of view as just thinly disguised mean-spiritedness, just the symptom of some acknowledged fear or anxiety that has been taken out on those who have nothing to do with the conservatives' real problems, which are being disguised in ostensible worries about the preservation of the traditional family. Right? This is why the, the benighted conservative must grow and uh, must, must become aware, can't just uh, keep living in this benighted state, needs the vision of the anointed. Now, people on the left acknowledge the destruction of the family is precisely their aim, right? That same-sex marriage will destroy the family. That's the whole point. Lesbian activist Marsha Gessen told a sympathetic audience, gay marriage is a lie. Fighting for gay marriage means lying about what we're going to do with marriage when we get there. It's a no-brainer that the institution of marriage should not exist, Right? Marriage equality becomes marriage elasticity with the ultimate goal of marriage extinction. Right? This is Marsha Gessen, lesbian activist. Right? From the liberal point of view, marriage equality becomes marriage elasticity with the ultimate goal of marriage extinction. So Marsha Gessen says, I have three kids who have five parents, and I don't see why they shouldn't have five parents legally. I met my new partner, and she just had a baby. That baby's biological father is my brother, and my daughter's biological father is a man who lives in Russia. My adopted son also considers him his father. So the five parents break down into two groups of three. Really, I would like to live in a legal system that is capable of reflecting that reality, and I don't think that's compatible with the institution of marriage. So marriage elasticity is all about marriage extinction, right? And they're not trying to make traditional 1950s-style nuclear family criminal, but this elasticity 
destroys the hero system that has underpinned the traditional family. It has deprived the institution of its traditional social meaning. So the family being targeted by the homosexual agenda, it's not the bare practices of cohabitation, financial independence, and child rearing by legally bound adults. It's the hero system of social conservatives, the thick structure of aspirational roles invoked by talk of traditional family values. This is what conservatives are referring to when they warn the family is under attack. And so the institution of same-sex marriage carries implications for heterosexual couples. Traditional marriage has become but one possible interpretation of a civil institution. It is no longer its intrinsic and uncontested meaning. Right? You really don't want that upon which you build your life to have a contested meaning. So in the new order, heterosexual marriage constitutes not same-sex marriage constitutes not merely an expansion of rights, but a whole change in social meaning. It upsets social plausibility. It disrupts the resonance of traditional understandings of marriage. It disrupts the traditional interpretation of marriage. So as marriage becomes socially understood as just another agreement rather than a sacred rite, a sacrament, its value is viewed as residing in individual sentiments rather than in a transcendent dispensation that ratifies these sentiments. So traditionalists are threatened with a different interpretation of themselves. They're confronted with the possibility of that which they regard as sacred, right? That this just comes out of their own idiosyncratic emotions and has no ultimate or societal meaning. Now, they can assert whatever they want about the legal status of same-sex marriage, but marriages, heterosexual traditional marriages like their own, you know, can still truly count in the eyes of God. But this interpretation is now contested and social meanings are challenged and changed. So the meaning that traditionalists would like to imbue their marriages with will no longer carry the same meaning in reality. They want to imbue a certain meaning into their marriage, but the existence of same-sex marriage undercuts that. So this is why conservatives worry about left-wing attacks on the family. So this is a relativizing of the epistemically objective into the ontological subjective, right? Liberals are trying to dissolve the power of heretofore taken for granted social meanings by highlighting their contingent, meaning constructed, socially constructed origins in the coordinated meaning generated activities of human beings, the recognition of which compels people to take these meanings less seriously. Once you understand that everything that you believe is contingent and constructed, you'll start to take everything you believe less seriously. So, Conservatives respond with outrage, incredulity, right? All right, we, we don't just morally disagree, all right? We don't just have a different version of the good, right? So for a left-wing perspective, you know, we are benighted. We are still existing in pre-reflective social meanings. So the subtext of liberals' outrage is that we can subtract the traditional human experience and traditional social meanings, and conservatives are guilty of ha having failed to do so. But this subtraction is impossible. It's a cultural fiction. So conservatives' vague premonitions of erosion or unraveling refers to the erosion and unraveling of something real, something on which human beings depend upon which they do really encounter as an independent object, forces to be reckoned with. So liberals' outraged incredulity 
about traditional morality is intended to deny this. So the purpose of this liberal denial is not just to condemn conservatives morally, but basically to impugn their basic competence as human agents, to highlight their failure to realize their human essence as strategic agents liberated from the confining horizons of a benighted past. So where the benighted traditionalist speaks of some ethereal social fiber, the postmodern sophisticate speaks of social constructions. But the underlying referent is the exact same. We all have a hero system. We all depend on a story. We all have socially sustained meanings that fortify us in our identity. So this is what conservatives defend, and this is what liberals attack. So follow, following the lead of Martha Nussbaum, liberals dismiss opposition to same-sex marriage as a symptom of a narcissistic fear and aggression woken by anxiety about changes that elude our control and loss of control over cherished values. Now, liberals can recognize, if they try, this same kind of narcissistic fear and aggression is not just unique to social conservatives, it is a human constant that works itself out in a great many ways, either crudely or subtly, and without any overt religious or moralistic trappings. So liberals can recognize in theoretical context uh, that are quickly forgotten in heated political ones that uh, conservatives are judged according to ideals or strategic agency that no one would be prepared to apply consistently. Conservatives have a visceral conviction that liberal culture is holding them down through oppressive dualisms and double standards. So liberals urge us to recognize the human constants that undermine the dualisms that this disingenuousness has facilitated Right, no, this is conservatives, to recognize the symmetries that go unacknowledged by liberal culture. So for people on the left, it's a great mystery. Why do so many people in America still vote Republican? So why do voters subordinate their sub substantial material interests to symbolic interests, right? This has been a decisive factor in left-wing critiques of the of Republicans since the Nixon years, when Republicans first began invoking symbolic concerns in an appeal to Southerners and to working-class voters. So liberals are exasperated with conservatives' preoccupation with intangible and merely symbolic goods like national honor, the moral fiber of society, and so forth. So we have this sharp dichotomy between the symbolic and the substantive, according to liberals. This is a way of articulating the subtraction account inspired contraposition between superstition, superstitious pre-moderns just self-indulgently succumbing to the allures of inherited teleological regimes and self-critical moderns with the discipline to resist these temptations and direct their attention toward natural causality and its bearing on fulfillment. So conservatives from a left-wing perspective are governed by the passions while liberals are governed by their interests. But this whole ethos of disengaged self-control and self-reflexivity is not invoked when it comes to liberals' own merely cultural preoccupations. So liberals have no difficulty recognizing the serious of the symbolic in the context of multiculturalism. So here it is, conservatives who reduce the symbol, some kind of socioeconomic frustration, to free-floating, self-indulgent, identitarian preoccupations uprooted from the harsh truths of everyday life in the real world. So Thomas Sowell observes, the world of the anointed anointed is a very tidy place. So every deviation of the real world from the tidiness of their vision is considered to be someone's fault. So unfulfilled yearnings and chafing inhibitions have no place in this tidy world of the anointed, where even an inadequate supply of group heroes and historic group achievements is someone else's fault. So people on the left are always talking about, oh, you know, lack of role models for minorities. 
when the left does this, they're recognizing we all need hero systems. We all need a story. And somehow this lack of heroes for this and that minority group is the fault of the historians. So that the left understands that reality is socially constructed and therefore can be deconstructed and reassembled to one's heart's desires. So if the number of black scientists and inventors acknowledged in high school history textbooks is of sufficient importance to the self-esteem, therefore the long-term life prospects of black students as to qualify as substantial rather than simply symbolic, then why should the question of whether America was at its inception a Christian nation be dismissed as a distraction from the bona fide substantive interests of religious conservatives? Is there not a double standard here? Of course there is. The line between the symbolic and the substantive appears to have been drawn in the service of liberal ideology. So why are so many liberals obsessed with whether there is prayer at a school graduation or whether the local town hall has a Christian creche? What possible harm is being done? Well, the liberals object because placing a creche in town hall is purely symbolic, but it's a symbol that the left wants to remove. So what the left keeps talking about as merely symbolic is really the particular range of cultural preoccupations associated with conservative claims of cultural oppression. So when conservatives have the upper hand on a cultural issue, then liberals insist that only bread and butter issues are the serious issues. But when liberals are on the offense, it's all about racial quotas, the mainstream of gay culture, scrubbing the public square of Christianity, and other explicitly cultural ambitions. So sometimes liberals and conservatives both deny symbolic cultural grievances, and they are tangible only when they are voiced in the terms of ordinary Americans, or when they are celebrated as idealism or insight, when conveyed in the professional lingo of credentialed academic elites. So symbolic cultural grievances are not real when they are voiced by ordinary Americans, but they are real when they are celebrated as idealism and insight when done in the professional lingo of the academic elite. So liberals have been projecting their own vices onto conservatives. So they are trying to deny their own status as symbolic animals seeking cosmic specialness through a socially sustained hero system. That's what we are. We're all symbolic animals. We are all seeking cosmic specialness through a socially sustained hero system. And therefore, we find it painful when our hero system is undercut. So the whole fabric of our experience is structured by a socially sustained sense of transcendence. The modern liberal identity is just another hero system in disguise. It is a social practice that celebrates certain identities while denying and discrediting others. It strengthens the hypothesis of this being about jealousy and rivalry. I didn't realize that if you list, if you go to Wikipedia uh, and see who it says, the three people it says, do get the most credit, not that they deserve the most credit, but the three people who do get more credit than him for uh, the, the, the COVID vaccines. Um, one of them is co-founder of Moderna, which did the one big mRNA vaccine. And the other, and one of the other ones is a vice president at BioNTech, which collaborated with Pfizer to produce the Pfizer vaccine. So right. it really is his most intense rivals who are getting rich and famous. I mean, one of these is this woman who is probably gets the most media attention as, as inventor. So I didn't... Talking about this uh, anti-vax scientist. I didn't quite realize how closely... Uh, his his rivalries align with the vaccines themselves. Right. So it's not it's not that he is falsifying his role in inventing the vaccines. It's that he has a legitimate role, and that just makes him all the more jealous. Well, yeah. I, what I said at the end was, you know, people are acting as if Malone acts as if 
you know, you should believe him on this subject because he really did make this super important seminal contribution. His detractors seem to agree that the question of his credibility is related to the question of his uh, credentials in the sense of how seminal he was because they keep trying to undermine the claim. Robert and Malign. I said they both may have it wrong. And maybe the reason you shouldn't trust him is because he really did make such a seminal contribution <laughs> that this thing is driving him fucking nuts. <laughs> I, I think it works that way sometimes. I mean, you know, all the seminal yeah. contributions I have made, not gotten credit for, and how that has driven me crazy, right? Uh, all too well. Um, I, so, uh, um, I think you're holding together very well, given really sliding by history. A lesser um, man, a lesser man would have gone on the Joe Rogan show. But I've said, no, Joe, I'd love to. I'd love to. But I don't want to, you know, I, it's not about credit. I'm, I say, and, and I've, I've said this to Joe, Joe, the less you care about credit, the more you'll get done in this world. Um, I said that to Joe. But you didn't cite Ronald Reagan. That's the usual. Um, Ronald? It's, it's, sure. I I talked to Ron about this. Yeah, it's, he said it um, to me before he said it publicly. Ron got this from me. You know, I don't get enough credit for that. The, um, it's weird how the vax has now become, anytime anybody dies, everybody thinks, uh, did he just get a booster shot? They say that about Bob Saget. Uh, they said that about Betty White. I had a friend who died, and uh, it was my second thought was, wait. Well, had all these people just gotten boosters? I think maybe Saget had. Betty White, they said, uh, the answer is I don't know, actually. But would they tell you if they that did? That would be helpful data. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to try to do a probability assessment here. Um, anyway, um, I learned something about Bob Saget. Oh. Uh, the comedian. It turns out he, he was a nice guy, but his fellow comedians thought he was way too dirty and not funny because he was too dirty and they didn't understand why he was so fucking dirty. So, I, uh, they, they didn't like the, his stick in the aristocrats either. His stick, his stick in the aristocrats, as I think I said last week, unless I told you this afterwards, his version of the joke was so revolting yeah. and he kept laughing. When I saw the movie, I guess I said this last week, when I saw the movie, I thought there was something pathetic and desperate about him, like trying to be one of the cool kids. Um, you know, because he, he was burdened with this with the, kind of the opposite image. He was, good guy he, image, yeah. he was the, Ameri- the host of America's Home Videos, and he's here to chuckle with America's families, and he's host of this benign show, whatever it was called, Full House. I, I mean, he's in this show, Full House. And I, I thought or, The Aristocrats was his attempt to compensate I, for that. No, I don't think, it wasn't like Miley Cyrus trying to counteract her Disney image by, by you know, twerking or whatever she did. Um, it's, uh, it, it, apparently, I think his, his love of filth uh, long predated his appearance at Full House. I think he just always liked the disgusting humor. You know, I'm a nice guy. They all said he was a nice guy. I'm going to try to track down my grievance about American journalism that's related to Bob Saget because I think uh, I'll, I'll be I'll be I'll be working on this while we uh, speak. Uh, um, you, um, I didn't realize you had a grievance on American journalism. <laughs> my grievance, my grievance today is that all the publications that I might agree with on the right, I can't read because they're written in this completely biased, overdone, propagandistic fashion designed to appeal to only people who agree with them. Uh, the classic thing is American greatness. If I see a, if I see an article from American greatness, I just my heart sinks, because it's it's you know it's not going to be written in a way to persuade the unpersuaded. Wait, I might put, be one of the unpersuaded. Who puts out it's American like, greatness? I don't know, uh, but there are a bunch of them like that, and they're all like that. Town hall, they're all, they're all. Well, it's a problem on the left too. Yes, Every, but everyone's preaching to the converted in the modern yeah. media environment, except for but, you and me, and we're, that's because nobody's watching. It. But it's not. Um, but you usually see it directed at the left, and I don't know from the. Okay, I got my grievance. Right. It's, a, it's a CNN piece, but it purports to be news. Okay, let's see what uh, Tucker Carlson has to say. So the economy goes south, and you want to know what's going on, so you look around for uh, an economist to interview, and somehow you find the single most absurd, most discredited economist in the world, Paul Krugman of the New York Times, the guy who told us the Internet would be less important than fax machines. But the eunuch over at CNN brought him on because, like, only the worst. And here's what he said. Can we dispense with the recession debate real quick? Are we in a recession, and does the term matter? <laughs> uh, no, we aren't, and no, it doesn't. I mean, the uh, <laughs> one sentence—that was it, it, huh? 
That was it. Yeah. Shut up and eat your bugs. Blake Masters is one of the people who will change the United States Senate if he gets there. He's running from Arizona. His primary, by the way, is tomorrow. He joins us tonight. Blake Masters. Yeah, no, we don't care what uh, politicians have to say. Hey, police are arresting people for, quote, causing anxiety to politically protected groups. They don't care about your anxiety, but the people they do care about must be protected at gunpoint from anxiety. This is video of police in the UK arresting an army veteran for posting criticism of trans activists on social media. Which Hampshire police would realise how ridiculous this is. It is. Of course, I'm happy to come to this. What did it need to come to? What escalated it to this level? Because I don't understand. I posted something that he posted. You come to arrest me, you don't arrest him. Why has it come to this? Why am I in cuffs? Because of something he shared, then I shared. Because someone has been caused, obviously, anxiety based upon your social media site. Keep in mind, the guy who got arrested didn't hurt anybody. He called those activists fascists. So to prove they're not fascists, they stood by and laughed as he was arrested for making fun of them because they're not fascists. Right. Lawrence Fox is the man who shot the footage you just saw. He's an actor and leader of the British Reclaim Party. He joins us tonight. Lawrence Fox, thanks so much for coming on. Is there anything that we're missing here? Did the guy who was arrested physically attack anybody? Is there context that we don't know about? Uh, good evening, Tucker. No, not at all. Uh, the great tragedy here is that uh, a British Army veteran with a long service record who served in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, proudly served our flag is, is now being arrested for not worshipping at the altar of the Holy Pride flag. And um, it's appalling uh, arrest by the British Gestapo, which is what uh, the British police force has become. I don't think that's an overstatement at all. So the activist groups on whose behalf this was done, did, did they applaud it? Did they lodge a complaint? Did they defend the guy who was arrested for making fun of them? No, not at all. What we, what we did was once we heard of this uh, gross horribleness uh, being meted out on this man was that we decided that we'd surprise the police and give them a dose of their own medicine, which we did. And we offered them a conflict resolution form where they could pay some money to us so we could teach them the law. But alas, the British police have fallen. They're much too interested in virtue signaling and uh, bowing at the altar of wokery. I hope you fight back savagely. I think everything's at stake. Lawrence Fox, I appreciate your bravery and your willingness to come on tonight. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. A better understanding of the man Thank and you. how he... Be Out of time, sadly. Can't quite believe that. We'll be back, though, tomorrow. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tucker. Thank you for all you do for the American people. News. Robert Wright. It's, it's like... Okay, it's in the entertainment section. Maybe I shouldn't judge it so harshly. But, you know, I have this thing about how, you know, repertorial media has drifted away from actual, like, fact-based uh, stuff. Uh, this is written as, as, as like, bio -mater biographical material, this sentence, by a reporter at CNN. Saget met Rizzo. This is his wife. Saget met Rizzo, a food and travel blogger, via Instagram six years ago, and the pair shared a deep and abiding love. Now, I'm sorry. I think <laughs> you got to quote the wife on the deep and abiding love <laughs> part. You shouldn't assert that as a reporter. Is that is that a super petty thing to say, especially about somebody who just died? I'm sorry. Yeah, I think so. Okay, sorry. Um, I mean, what, what what spouse is going to say? Yes, I had a deep and abiding love. I mean, obviously, you're, well, well, well that's that's dies, a separate you're, critique. Of you're this a whole welter. Thing. Of, you're a welter of conflicting emotions, and you can't. You probably are wise. You do not talk to reporters about them. That's that's a separate critique of this whole thing. Like like kind of. I mean, 
just going to the wife and, you know, you know but, but, but my critique was that this part was not even attributed to the wife. This was the reporter telling us how deep and abiding their love. His wife's a quote about well, their- The reporter probably just made it up. No, I think right. she took the wife's word for it. The wife's right. uh, final communication. Right. I like at least that she qualified this. Here's the wife in a quote. I think I said, this is their final, like that, the night he died in the hotel room. When they were, after they talked on the phone, I think I said, I love you dearly. And he said, I love you endlessly. And then I said, I can't wait to see you tomorrow. She, she said, it was just all up. At least she qualified it. She said, I think. She gets credit. She'd I mean, be a better reporter than the reporter, I think. And then he said, glad I just had this booster. <laughs> uh, the, um, hmm. You should, it's too soon, Mickey. Too soon. Too soon. <laughs> the point is, it's not too soon. Everybody who dies is now subjected to this, like, decision tree of COVID speculation. Another comedian died, like, today or something. Louis something? Yes. Well, who was he? What was his name? Not CK. It was a different Louis. No. Was it, uh... At some point, I want to talk about the metaverse, but I'm intrigued. You, you have more bad things you want to say about David Remnick? Not that I approve of that. I don't approve of that. I well, like I just – I talked to somebody who was a uh, – who I was trying to talk into writing the great Remnick hit piece. That Did we tell people that he's the editor of The New Yorker? He's the editor of The New Yorker. He's obviously a very good, smart guy. Won a Pulitzer Prize for a book about Russia. But um, uh, uh, A, he's not all that the, – the, the critique would be, I guess, A, he's not all that interesting. B, at The New Yorker, he's been – he lives in terror of, uh, you know, woke, woke – people who were just graduating from college marching on his office and demanding that a piece be taken down or not, or not considered. As a result, uh, number three, he, he produces a pretty uh, politically, uh, you know, not offending anybody on the left uh, magazine and uh, with a bunch of people, pieces taking the party line. Uh, and, that, and I think that's true. And D, as a result, The New Yorker has lost all this quirkiness and it's become another PC magazine, like all the other PC magazines put out in the New York publishing world. And that's the case against Rednick. Your indictment is missing a bullet point. You can probably guess. He slighted you when you were in college. No, actually, he didn't. Oh, okay. You know what he has in common with you? Uh, this is what I learned in college. An important thing he, he has in common. He pretends to be nice, but really he's filled with animus and jealousy. No. Okay. He's not as good a basketball player as I am. Hmm. Is it's that the fifth bullet point? What? That's not the bullet, that, point. The bullet I mean, point. What's the bullet point? The bullet point is uh, about the, the New Yorker is part of the blob, of course. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked you didn't guess that. New Yorker is part of the blob. Is Remnick's foreign policy blobby? I mean, he obviously has one. He wrote a book on Russia. Um, I, I don't know about his foreign policy. I mean, he, you know, he, they played uh, a non-trivial role in getting us into Iraq. I mean, they ran, the New Yorker ran while he was editor, the Jeffrey Goldberg piece saying, you know, hey, I think this may be evidence of an Al-Qaeda-Saddam Hussein connection, which was a big claim that got a lot of attention in Slate and NPR and so on. Um. And mattered, uh, but also David himself wrote, it was like an editorial, he wrote his own column, very unusual thing, advocating in the invasion of Iraq himself. Okay. For the okay. editor of the New Yorker to take an editorial position like that, okay. I think was probably unprecedented. Um, has, he, but, has he issued any kind of uh, groveling apologia for that? No, I think he, I, I'm not aware of one. Uh, I, 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 uh, I don't know, but I think the, the blobbishness now probably has less to do with his ideology than what you're talking about. Just, just it's responding to its perceived constituency. Right. And, and, and I do find that its perceived constituency is, well, I, I want to say, but his, it's, it's uh, predictable attacks on Trump and Trump's uh, policies were a level less sophisticated than the Atlantic's predictable attack on Trump's and Trump's policies. That's interesting. So you, you, get the, you get the impression that New Yorker readers are stupider and less well-informed than Atlantic readers, or at least they're, uh, the, the New Yorker style, which is don't hit a point too hard, you know, uh, makes its pieces seem like they're directed at a stupider audience. But wait, with Trump, you mean they're not hitting the anti-Trump points hard or what? Well, they, just the New Yorker never is never, you know, the, the whole, the, I think the inherited attitude of the New Yorker is you don't come right out and preach to people. This is not a problem at the Atlantic. Well, they don't. <laughs> well, well, right. I mean, the, New Yorker, right out and preach to you. the New Yorker uh, pretty much doesn't run, you know, op-ed type pieces. It pretty much doesn't run essays that are argumentative 
argumentative in an op-ed right. way. It feels that you have to like you have to do some reporting. You have to say, I was having lunch with this guy, and he said that maybe this is a bad idea. I talked to him some more. So, yeah. and in, in that way, they can be not the most efficient use of your time, unless you like the narrative parts, which is okay. But I think the Atlantic just does flat out argument, like yeah. they, you know. Yeah, and, and as well as around the stuff at the Atlantic, uh, uh, came in for a, a, a bunch of grief from a, a quarter I didn't expect, Commentary Magazine, which basically uh, wrote a pretty good uh, ran a pretty good essay. Uh, trashy the Atlantic for just constantly being like apocalyptic and downbeat, and the world is about to end in three minutes if you don't do something, and, uh, and having that having the the uh, sort of depressive apocalyptic view of all developments. Uh, and I think they they immediately confirmed that by running a depressive apocalyptic uh, review of Saturday Night Live. <laughs> so uh, uh, I, I I mean they, I, I you think that if you were Laureen Powell Jobs, you're you're starting to wonder. Is this is this is this a is this magazine boosting my social status or not boosting my social status? I'm sure it's helping. I mean, look, it it, it gets read, it has influence, and that makes people only more likely to suck up to her. I mean, um, not that that's what she cares about. I I don't I, know much about her. I do think her predecessor, David Bradley, uh, among uh, the the attractions owning the magazine for for him were social ones. They very commonly are. They usually are. I, Owners of magazines yeah, I, usually have social I, motivation. I, I know I know nothing about her except that she's very very pro immigration. So much so that the strategy meetings for how to pass amnesty were conducted in the offices of her collective that owns the Atlantic. So it's not just that the Atlantic was, you know, promoting amnesty. It's that they were actually running the show in some sense. Which her, her, foundation, her foundation. Her foundation. Her foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was sort of a step, uh, a step further toward uh, praxis on the part of journalists. Um, the, uh, I, I've also, um, oh, wait, just one question. I, the commentary, do they agree with the Atlantic on? I, I don't follow commentary. I know it's like, is it John? Is John Podorowicz still involved? Yes. The answer is I don't know. Do they agree with the Atlantic in, in its uh, on reflection of anti-Trumpism? Yeah. The, the standard line is that uh, Norman Podorowicz is pro-Trump and John is anti-Trump. Is Norman but still this, alive? Yes. Jeez, how old is he? He's old. I could have guessed that. I was hoping for he's older than Biden. Answer. That's old. Um, uh, but he still writes well. Um, he. Uh, th- but I don't know to what extent John enforces his, you know, his view on commentary. Uh, so. Uh, that's an interesting question. It John could have been Edwards a statement against a... They could have been they could have been attacking somebody who basically a magazine that basically agreed with them. Uh, which well, you think of you think of commentary as being very ideologically motivated. It's very yeah. much you know ideological. Yeah. Uh, uh, I would think I, I would assume there's something there. Do you know John Butterworth? Strange guy. Little, I don't yeah. know him, but I can confidently say he's a strange guy. A little, I like him. Yeah, but but he's like famous... he, he's pathologically mer- mercurial on Twitter. He's like he's crazy. In fact, I don't I mean, think he's he, on Twitter he, anymore. He, he took himself off Twitter because he wisely, was so, wisely. Yeah. But he, um, he was it, he was always entertaining. The, uh, yeah, unless unless he, you were the one he was calling whatever he would call me every three months. There was a time when um, he published something about me and said I'd written something attacking the sixties or something, and and uh, Mickey Cowles who misses who misses or praising the sixties, and he said Mickey Cowles who misses you know the um, uh, the sixties when 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 he could get like a lot of sex. And uh, and I and I, I you corrected I, him. Yeah, I stupidly told him that that wasn't right. I didn't get a lot of sex in the sixties, and he put in a correction. <laughs> we were like, uh, uh, we, we we're sorry, we were we were wrong. Mickey House didn't get laid in the sixties, so um, serves me right. Uh, anyway, but I do like him. I think he I think he's a very very talented person. Um, the uh, uh, the, the this the the thing about rich people owning uh, publications uh, came to my mind when I was thinking about the L.A. Times coverage of this crime, this horrible crime in LA where this young woman was killed working in a furniture store just by a random sort of street person criminal who walked in the door. And, uh, I didn't read uh, about it. But... The LA times is, um, coverage was always like, a, it's always like a step behind. Like they wouldn't identify the race of the guy because, uh, when, when there was a manhunt for him. Okay. And you wanted to know all the details of what he looked like. Okay. And he was eventually caught cause they got some photographs, which some, which showed his face in detail and the LA times did publish them. 
uh, and he was spotted the next day, and he was now, he's now under arrest. But um, uh, and and then sort of the British papers got more about this guy's background and his rap sheet and sort of where he comes from. The LA Times is always a step behind. They sort of consider it beneath them to cover crime, and it's especially un PC to cover crimes that might inflame people against people of color. Uh, and I realize they're owned by this rich guy. There's no fucking you know, he, he, there's no way that they have to improve. It, it, they can lose all the readers they want. The rich guy will still keep funding the magazine. He's so rich, funding the newspaper. He's so rich. He's he's removed any reason for them to get better. Normally in the market, you'd want, you think, well, people want to read about crime, so you better cover crime or else you're going to lose your readers. They don't care about that because Patrick, whatever his name is, Soonji, whatever, uh, is going to, uh, uh, he's a billionaire doctor who, who this is a sidelight for him. And he's he, a billionaire it, doctor? He's a billionaire doctor. Yeah, he's, he made a he, billion dollars as a doctor? As a, he brings drugs to market. He he, he made it as a, oh. as a drug person, yes. Um, and he's working on a COVID cure, you know? I mean, he may help save the world, but um, he, he ain't going to bring accountability to the LA Times because no matter how much they fuck up, Unless they yeah. really embarrass him, they're not going to get into trouble. A billion is a lot. I mean, most rich people who own publications, even though they're rich, they still are very conscious of whether the publications are making money, how much they're losing. Because most of them aren't he, that rich. I mean, Marty really he, wanted to minimize losses on yeah. the Republic. Ideally, now, this guy's rich enough that he, David Bradley was the same way. He found out. He he found out. Oh, I'm losing a shitload of money on the LA Times, and then he decided I don't care. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so he's that rich. Uh, uh, you know, I think it's important for the community that the institution survive, uh, and that sort of is inimical to making the institution finally uh sensitive to what the public wants so um anyway that i'm not you know i think lorene jobs is just as rich but i think she's a little more sensitive probably to uh what her magazine you know whether her magazine is held in high esteem or low esteem uh, uh anyway they caught this guy people like me are trying to blame our woke district attorney uh, for what and, for what well this guy obviously you know like a like a, a friend of a friend saw him cleaning out the cvs uh drugstore you know just stealing from it and running out the door and people do that because they know the DA isn't going to, is unlikely to prosecute shoplifting. And there's this crazy proposition that says if it's under $900, it's a misdemeanor. So um, uh, all, the, all these woke laws are producing a class of people that thrives on petty crime. And maybe if the laws threw some of them in jail, they wouldn't have time to be able to murder people while they're out free. Well, I think I said this before once in the pair room, but I was in a New York pharmacy like before, right before the pandemic, I guess. And uh, a guy just walked in and it was just, just stealing like, you know, petty shit. I think like a ton of cases of soft drinks. But he was totally casual about it. It was clear he was just walking out the door. And nobody tried to stop him. And I asked them afterwards, you know, the, the people who work there, and they said, the cops will not, if you describe a crime like that to them, the cops will not, they'll just say they don't have time. There's no point. So, and it's weird. And yeah, go ahead. People on the left say the cops will tell you that, that that's because the prosecutors won't prosecute. Maybe. And the prosecutors, the people on the left say, of course the prosecutors will prosecute. The cops are just making up lies because they're lazy. And, they, you know, I tend to sort of believe the cops, but could that's be. A source, that's a source of dispute in the argument over crime. Uh, the, the cop, it's a little like affirmative action. I mean, people, white people who are denied jobs are constantly told, you didn't get your job because they want to hire a minority. Uh, and probably they're told that, but it's not the reason why they didn't get hired. They didn't get hired because they didn't like you, right? Um, but it's true enough, I think, that, that, that I think there's a basis for worrying about affirmative action and, and the resentments being actually grounded. And I think the, the, the cops probably recognize that in practice, even though in theory, the DAs can prosecute these minor crimes, in practice, they're not going to. Now, Mickey... As for your claim that Matt Iglesias does not write his own newsletter. I didn't say that. I said he had a shop. As for your claim that he has a shop. In the recent uh, recent newsletter, which I think may be behind a paywall. I mean, I got it in my inbox, but, you know, he gave me a comp to it. By the way, I call him Matt. And he gave me a comp. And uh, I'm not saying that reflects my stature. But by the way, did he give you a comp, Mickey? Did Matt? I call him Matt. No, I, said, I pay. I pay for it. You pay for it. Oh, okay. Just ask. I, I paid for it immediately. I didn't, you know. I didn't have to get it for free in order to want to read it, Bob. Oh, well, he actually asked me before I think he even launched it. Um, <clears throat> I call him Matt. Okay, so some, he had a Q&A. Uh, maybe you read this. Readers ask questions. And somebody said, how are you so 
damn prolific. But first, I want to read this question. This uh, The question was, have you ever been to a European Tex-Mex restaurant more than once? I guess you have to know more about math than I do to know that that's a good question. He says, I've been to Texas Embassy Cantina in London twice, uh, Indiana and Paris at least a half a dozen times over the years, and Taco Bar in Stockholm twice. Uh, and he goes on. Anyway, on this, this is, yeah. This is part of my beef with Iglesias because his foodiness, and the same is true of a lot of these whippersnappers, has sort of uh, made, or it's, it's consonant with their snobbishness. So they don't have much feeling for social equality because they're constantly looking for a restaurant that's a cut above the rest or you know, better service in restaurants. And they, what is, they, the love of food that does not seem to go hand in hand with social equality where you'd want to feel solidarity with people who eat any old crap. Well, they, you know? they come from a generation of foodies. You know, I remember an early thing in blogging heads was blogging chefs. Do you remember that? It was like, I don't know if Matt was involved, but like Ezra Klein, it was like two, you know, there were these houses where a bunch of bloggers would live together in Washington in those days. Uh, and Ezra, oh, oh um, what's his name? A libertarian named Julian. Sounds like, a, sounds like a sitcom. Uh, Megan McArdle was part of it, I think. Anyway, no, they had these competing houses on blogging heads. They each had a camera making food. Anyway, they are all foodies. But what is yeah. the other, what is the broader let's snobbishness? Go to, let's go to that videotape. It's probably incredibly embarrassing. Uh, it's It's got to be out there somewhere. What is the broader manifestation of his snobbiness that you're saying this is- Well, I really take issue with what he was talking about the, at Starbucks. He was talking about the sort of frequent flyer miles and how it's, you know, which 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 programs are good. And, the, you know, the, the, the uh, and it, what's really important is that you've got special privileges that other customers don't have. And the idea that, you know, that's inherently offensive to me. You go into Starbucks and some people are getting special privileges and some people aren't. Fuck that. I want an egalitarian experience. Iglesias Wait, didn't seem to care. Who does Starbucks give special experiences to? They had some, they had some, they had some fledgling program that's probably died. This was years ago. But it's not because you're famous, right? It's because you no, pay. because you're a frequent customer. But oh, even well, so. God's sake. Come on, Mickey. Even so, special privileges are special privileges. So, like, if, if they punch your card 10 times and give you free coffee, you, you think they should. Uh, be, it was more know. than free coffee. It was like, you know, I don't Massages, know. You can yeah. sit with your laptop for longer or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. It's a special elevated section of the restaurant where you sit where you can lord it over. I, I don't know what they were planning to give you. So the question that was asked of him was this. Even before Slow Boring, that's the name of his newsletter, I viewed you as a prolific writer, but the frequency with which you publish and the variety of topics that you thoroughly explore since transitioning to Substack strikes me as unique. I imagine that writing as much as you do requires a ton of reading as well, and I can't understand how there are enough hours in the day for you to publish as often as you do. At this point, Mickey and Tones, no, but there are enough slaves in the basement. Anyway, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about, I'm continuing, can you talk a little bit about your process for selecting topics, researching them, and writing? What does your routine look like? How much time lapses between identifying a possible topic and a post? Are you typically working on one post at a time or so? Overall, I'm just curious to get a glimpse into how the slow, boring sausage is made. Now, Matt replies, I call him Matt. Matt replies, not to be an egomaniac or anything, but I think the main way that I maintain a high level of productivity is that I write serviceable prose much faster than most people, and I'm really good at remembering things I read or hear. I do think he has an extraordinary brain. But what's one interesting thing, before I get to the process issue, which is maybe less interesting, an interesting thing about his brain is he says, but mostly I think different people are good at different things. I can't visualize anything at all, aphantasia it's called, and can't really describe what things look like. So I'm bad at writing narratives. Uh, this is an actual thing. The only other person I know who has said that he cannot visualize anything mentally was also a super smart guy. He was one of the first 20 people to work at Google and as a result now has a lot of money. And, and he he works for like, you know, uh, crypto, uh, not cryptocurrency, but like uh, encryption. He's, you know, does m encryption math for, you know, a, C a CIA, uh, whatever, you know, one of these, one of these CIA related things. He said the same thing. And uh, I'm wondering if, there must be, if there's some kind of upside that is sometimes correlated with a complete inability to visualize things. Have you ever known anybody like this? No, I, I can visualize them. I just can't write them well. No, I, I'm bad at visualization. I'm not good at it. But I mean, this other guy was talking to, he said he doesn't even know. I mean, people, he tries to have people describe him what it's like to be able to visualize things. It's like he can't <laughs> do it. I'm bad that, at I, it. That, that might sort of uh, make abstract thinking easier, right? Well, That's I mean, there's a certain kind of abstract thinking that I think draws on visualization. Um, but I huh. think, I think, 
linear, like I am manifestly bad, like, like standardized tests confirm that my ability to conceive of things of spatial relations is below average. Um, I'm better I, at linear thought, and I wonder if 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 there's a trade-off between them sometimes. Right. I don't know. I'm terrible at plots and storytelling. I, I there, there's those there's those tests that they show, they show you a farmer and somebody else sitting on a fence, and you're supposed to make up a story about them. I I'm bad crapped, at that too. I was crapped out after two minutes, whereas my roommate like went on and on for so many hours that they had to like cancel the test. <laughs> yeah, I'm so, not great at that. Um, Final thing uh, about Matt in terms of process, this is also different from me, probably from you. In terms of process, I would just say I always have a lot of balls in the air. It's not rare for me to jot down a few paragraphs in the notes app on my phone while watching TV or standing in line at the local coffee shop just because I came up with a point that I like. Those paragraphs might become the basis of tomorrow's article and so on. By the way, Jerry Brown, similarly, like during that Zoom con call, I noticed, you know, that was a... Uh, uh, yeah, I do that too. So when I'm out for a walk out and about, I often jot down notes on uh, using the, the voice to text uh, feature on my iphone good way to jot things down before they leave me so as i get older i don't often you know have the short-term memory that i had when i was younger so as soon as i get an idea i try to jot it down that's it bye bye